Thank you for downloading this week's episode of PR Week's Coffee Break. For more episodes, visit PRWeek.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Coffee Break. It's Steve Barrett here, the Editorial Director of PR Week. And I'm here with Jeff Smokler, who is a partner at Imray and has just celebrated his 10th anniversary at the agency. So congratulations, Jeff, and welcome to Coffee Break. Thanks, Steve. Ten years. I didn't know I'd be anywhere that long. Good to see yeah. you this morning. It's Hey, you've got to celebrate uh, longevity uh, these days, yeah. haven't you? Because nobody knows what's around the corner. Yeah, true. Now, you've just sort of expanded your role at Imray. You were president of Imray Health. But uh, tell us about the new role and a little bit about what Imray does. You're based in Baltimore, I think. I am based in Baltimore, although we have four offices. We're in Manhattan. We're in Los Angeles. We're in Philadelphia and um, here in Baltimore. And we um, work from home across about 20 other states right now in the last two years. Um, so yeah, I've been at Emory for 10 years now, as you said. Um, I was hired 10 years ago to help build a healthcare practice. Several years into that, we stood up Emory Health as a division of Emory because we quickly were finding great success in our growth in healthcare. Um, and when I started, consumer was the lion's share of our revenue. And today we sit in a position where more than 80% of our revenue is in healthcare as an agency. Um, so in the last year, we hired a new president of Emory Health, um, a really talented woman named Anna Kotis, who joined us from Havana. For B, H4B Chelsea. Um, and so Anna is overseeing and running the day-to-day Emory Health Division of Emory. And that affords me the opportunity to um, continue to guide Emory Health, but also to guide all of our client business across consumer and healthcare, um, focusing both on our existing clients as well as new business and agency marketing. Now, obviously, healthcare has been top of everybody's mind the last couple of years, and it's it's been part of the growth of PR generally. There's been, PR has really stepped up. So tell us some of the trends you've seen, um, especially in the last couple of years, that have really uh, come to the surface as, as everybody deals with COVID and vaccines and getting back to whatever the next new normal is. And really, every issue now or communications issue has, has got some sort of a public health lens uh, involved in it, hasn't it? Well, it really does. It's interesting that you say that because, you know, one of the trends that we're seeing and that leans into what you're talking about um, is that there's more interest among our life sciences, big biotech, pharma clients to um, help redefine the definition of PR. Um, you know, things that might have might have previously been thought of in the marketing silo versus the PR silo. We see those silos coming together much more. You know, if you think about the historic structure of these large pharmaceutical companies, you got PR happening in the corporate affairs division. You've got marketing happening at the brand level. And we're working with clients to bring those two together in, in, in different ways. And frankly, I think that the, the, the COVID pandemic and, you know, the last two years of this wild ride everybody's been on has expedited that. Um, you know, we're working for a client now um, in the uh, consumer healthcare space uh, and the eye in the eye care and the ophthalmology space. And, you know, part of our approach to developing uh, an earned media program for those kinds of clients is to think of something we call storyscaping, which is really just the marriage of what's the brand story with what's happening in the landscape. So storyscaping. Um, and because we do that, there isn't a, a program that we're creating that doesn't somehow touch on the environment today and the COVID pandemic and how that's changing behaviors, changing both patient behaviors as well as prescriber behaviors, changing consumer behaviors. Um, so clearly that is a trend that we're seeing. 
Um, I also think, you know, if, as it relates to healthcare specifically, you know, historically, there's also been this separation between unbranded and branded programming. You know, how much do you put the brand's name on it? How much of it is, you know, under the guise of um, uh, 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 consent? Yes. Yeah, exactly. And I think what we're seeing more of now is bringing unbranded and branded together in new and exciting ways and not thinking necessarily of the two as you know, parallel paths, but instead thinking them as like an intertwined um, roadway. What are the regulatory implications of that? Because uh, it makes a lot of sense, but obviously you're working in, you're often working in very highly regulated uh, industries, aren't you, pharmaceuticals, et cetera? Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to understand, I mean, you have to appreciate the regular, the importance of the regulatory guardrails. That said, I always, you know, I think everybody has the mindset that it's harder to do anything in pharma because of the regulatory environment. What we have found that if you're smart about how you bring along your reviewers in an organization, so you've got your clients and your clients have to present things to their medical legal review teams. Um, the, the If you can start bringing the medical legal review folks along from the conception of an idea through the execution, it's easier to... Um, work in a way that makes everybody feel that you're being respectful of those regulatory guardrails. It's harder if you bake an entire program and then bring something to a regulatory review panel who has very little context. And frankly, Steve, we're even seeing that we need to bring technology to the regulatory process. So if we're proposing, I mean, we do a lot of, of digital and social media for life sciences brands. If we're proposing, you know, TikTok for um, a, a pharmaceutical brand, that's a whole new realm for most of our medical legal reviewers. And so we'll do live reviews. We'll send iPads and iPhones to the review team and do practice run-throughs of our live reviews where we'll show them the technology. We'll walk them through how ISI comes to life in those different kinds of modalities and really bring them along for the journey. So um, certainly regulatory concerns are a primary part of the strat the strategic and conceptualization of our ideas um yeah. but not a, but not an not an inhibitor yeah it's just something you've got to navigate you mentioned TikTok there you know the younger generations obviously engage with health issues in a very different way and the way everybody is engaging is is different they're taking more control they're using the internet which has got positive and negative uh, connotations but uh, how is that going to change healthcare generally and the way br healthcare brands are communicating because people they want more control they want i mean diverse audiences need to be t taken into account a lot more than they have been so talk us through that a little bit yeah, that's a really great point. And you know, that is kind of how we're viewing PR right now or earned an influencer PR through life sciences lens. It's how do we build influencer programs on the in, in channels where patients in HC, HCPs and others are, are, are using. So, you know, one of the ways to do that is to find physicians, clinicians, others who are expert in their field, who enjoy being on social media, who have their own followings before we reach out to them. We just launched a HCP TikTok program for a um, cancer drug that we work with. Um, and we have an actual oncologist who has more than 40,000 followers on his Instagram channel, explaining in very basic terms, not scientific terms, basic terms, what that type of cancer does and why their treatment is advancing the way in which we treat cancer. Answer. And it's, you know, just so interesting to watch oncologists speak to their own peers, because a lot of the folks who follow 
physicians on their social channels or other physicians. These are becoming, you know, the, the face of KOLs is changing and how we use them. So that, that that's one example. The other thing, and it gets more to the heart of your question, is we need to change and educate the way social media platforms allow healthcare brands to use their platforms. And we had a huge success recently. Our VP of social was working with TikTok um, and TikTok had some very specific regulations and there's certain content they won't allow in their platforms. There's actually certain disease states they won't even allow talked about because they feel like there's young or there's mature content like HIV, for instance, we work in the HIV space. We work in the women's sexual health space. And, you know, to someone who is not a healthcare um, thought leader, but perhaps a tech platform, they don't understand the nuances of that audience. They don't understand the nuances of how you seek to those folks. So rather than try to understand them, they typically just put up a, a no can do policy across the board. Just last week, our VP of social, after weeks of working with TikTok, was able to get an actual policy change from TikTok to allow for certain kinds of content. So it's about connecting the dots for some of those platforms, making sure that we have the speakers, making sure that we have the influencers who have interesting things to say, making sure that we find people who have their own audiences built already, and then greasing the skids on the back end, making sure that the technology platforms understand the value in giving those people a voice. So that's kind of how we're approaching that. Yeah, because these are global platforms, aren't they? And healthcare and pharma is, has obviously got very different regional rules and regs. So you've got to be aware of that. They're still getting used to it, aren't they? What are your reflections on, I mean, clearly, you know, nobody ever thought we could get vaccines produced and into markets so quickly. How, how has healthcare generally and pharma changed because of COVID and because of what's happened and how the industry has stepped up? And clearly there's a, there's a whole issue around misinformation, disinformation around the vaccines, got you know, quite febrile debates in the country and globally about, you know, whether, about how this is playing out. What's your reflections on that? You know, it's been an extraordinary, sometimes you forget we're all in the middle of this, aren't we? And it's, we're going so quickly, but sometimes you're like, wow, we got vaccines done in this, you know, really short space of time. Absolutely. I think, you know, if anything, Steve, I think the biggest trend is that, and, and maybe one of the silver linings of the pandemic is that for the first time, and as long as I can remember in my 20 plus career working as a healthcare communicator, the life sciences industry has some reputational capital that it never had before. You know, when did people talk about Pfizer? When did people talk about Moderna? I mean, those are words that people just, you know, everyday people just pop off the top of their heads now. And there's recognition now of, oh, that's what a pharma company does. They research and develop life-saving, life-altering, changing drugs and bring it to market in record speed. You know, for the last 20 years, pharma has had to defend its R&D budgets, why they invest so much. And there's been very little um, public um, recognition of the value of pharma companies. I see that changing. And my hope is that life sciences companies will leverage that reputational capital they have now, not retreat, and instead do more of that. Put their brands out there more and show where they're contributing to the greater good. Um, and I think you're seeing that from some of those companies that have already gotten some recognition for their vaccines. Um, 
separate from that, if I could just add, Steve, I think that there's certainly been changes in the in, in pharma marketing as a result of the pandemic, specifically in the healthcare professional marketplace. And you know, this isn't news to you, but you know, obviously, it's if if if, if folks aren't having conferences and congresses where HCPs typically get together, if um, if um, personal promotion is no longer allowed and reps aren't able to go into doctors' offices, you know, the reliance on digital platforms has never been so great. At Emory, we were lucky because we were already working in digital long before. I mean, a lot of our HCP programming was about virtual engagement, virtual personal promotion and non-personal promotion. Um, and then on the patient side, unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is that um, some of the brands we work with are not selling as many of their products because patients aren't seeing doctors. You know, I recent I heard something from someone yesterday who works on one of our ovarian cancer drugs, but that there are fewer ovarian cancer diagnoses this year than ever before. And that's not because suddenly fewer women have ovarian cancer. It's because those women aren't seeing their doctors. And so that's a real concern, yeah, not just because folks want to sell medication, but because we've got, you know, sick people out there who don't know they're sick. That's a good point and a very, very good point. Um, you know, we've, you mentioned HIV earlier. We've made great strides on that. When are we going to get a cure for cancers? You know, when are we going to make, make more progress on that? Because that's still like the biggest kit killer, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it is. I, I, I wish I had a, a magic eight ball and I could tell you. Um, but what yeah, I would a bit say, of a big question, that, to be honest. But, but what I would say <laughs> is that the number one, the, the therapeutic area where the pipeline is the biggest, and this is from any of the research you'll read from any of the consulting firms, is oncology. So there is a plethora of new drugs coming up in the pipeline in across multiple different um, areas in oncology. Um also, precision medicine is taking hold, meaning that the amount of funding being spent on understanding the way one particular cancer happens is bigger than it's ever been before. So I'm optimistic that we're making progress in the fight against cancer by virtue of the fact that so many of the world's most brilliant minds are focused on oncology. Just I mean, I'd like, cure, I'd like a cure for HIV, too, I should say. Um, Absolutely, and yeah. You know, and I've been amazed at the way um, companies working in that space have brought to market um, medications and, 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 frankly, public health and education programs that are changing the game. Yeah, it feels like we've made progress after actually quite a lot of years of inactivity on that. Yes, yeah, absolutely, uh, I agree. Just to finish, Jeff, you you've worked at Weber Shamwick, you worked at Blue Cross Blue Shield back in the day, and you were a speechwriter, and that is a very specialized skill. We don't talk about it that much, but really specialized skill. What just to finish the coffee break? What's your top tips for writing a great speech and being a good speechwriter? Because it's a very specialized skill. It is, and it's one that I love. Um, top tips, I would say never forget you're not writing for yourself. Always have the person who for whom you're writing's voice in your head because what I'm going to say to an audience is different than what someone else is going to say and the way I say it. So I'd say never lose sight of that. Um, I would say research, research, research. Um, you know, before you set down to write any speech, do, 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 you know, research the audience, research the topic, you know, even look at um, old jokes and comics and find... Um, 
culturally relevant ways to um, hit home on your message more. Because, you know, you and I have sat in audiences, we've heard people give, we've heard executives or, or policymakers give speeches, and there's nothing worse than feeling like you're just being spoken to. Terrible, and, isn't it? You know, exactly. And just being, you know, inundated with a message that doesn't necessarily relate to your life. So the more you can do to provide contextualization and cultural relevancy, I think, and levity. I think too often executives and, 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 and legislators and policymakers feel like adding levity to their speeches makes them look overly vulnerable or perhaps not as professional. But I'm a big b believer in um, levity being a, a connective tissue for everybody in a room. Yeah. Um, although you shouldn't try and be a comedian if you're not. I've, I've learned not a comedian. <laughs> All right, Jeff. Great to catch up. And uh, thanks for joining us on Coffee Break. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for the invitation, Steve. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Coffee Break. For more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.